It's time for a PSA, podcast service announcement. What a productive afternoon. In my hands, I have my mail-in ballot, which I had to send a request for because I live in Pennsylvania, a swing state. And I put it in my second envelope, just like naked Mark Ruffalo yelled at me to. I stayed up all night researching the candidates, Googling their values, and thinking deeply about the future of America and how my single vote can play a special part in making this country just a little bit better. And those pesky phone service people will finally stop calling me at all hours of the day. Ah, the mailbox. Time to return this ballot and be on my way. Stop right there, Mr. Millennial. <gasps> Peer pressure, Polly. What on Google Earth are you doing here? I came here to make sure you don't send in that ballot, Mr. Millennial. You have no idea what you're about to do. Participating in a flawed but ultimately necessary democracy that will impact generations to come? No, you nerd. You're going to do the most uncool thing any millennial or Gen Z over the age of 18 might ever do. Vote! But peer pressure, Polly, since when is voting uncool? Those dude bros who used to write speeches for Obama told me that voting is the right thing to do. Ha! Don't make me laugh like I do during the Joe Rogan experience. Voting is the least cool thing you can do. Why vote for a candidate you don't agree with 100% on every issue, past, present, and future? Hmm, that is an interesting point, peer pressure, Polly. Honestly, the candidate I voted for in this ballot sure isn't perfect. But if this other person wins, I don't think I'd like that one bit. Okay, Mr. Millennial, let me use an analogy. Imagine one of the candidates is a box of chocolates, but each one has been injected with coronavirus. Holy hinge profile, I definitely don't want to vote for a box of coronavirus chocolates. That's right. No, you don't. Now imagine your other choice of candidate is a bag of lemon cream Oreos. Uh, okay. But what are they really? Like swine foo? Nope. It's a bag of lemon cream Oreos. Uh, well, sure. I, I don't really like lemon cream Oreos, but isn't that better than a box of coronavirus chocolates? Ah, you're just not getting it. Mr. Millennial, there's no way we can fix all the problems in America unless we do nothing about it and insult the people who care enough to try. Gosh, peer pressure, Polly. What you're saying sure doesn't sound right, but you're putting all of this, I don't know, pressure on me, your peer, to not do something I'm pretty sure I should do. Just come with me, Mr. Millennial, and let's watch YouTube clips of Rick and Morty. You can figure out what to do with your ballot later. <laughs> when it's too late. Okay, peer pressure, Polly, I'll listen to you without thinking critically about the consequences. And maybe after Rick and Morty, we can do illegal drugs. Ha! Gotcha, dumb American. <gasps> Weird foreign reporter Demo Rat, you were in disguise this whole time? That is right, dumb millennial boy. I came to America country to influence election. Very nice. And it works so easy. Now you embarrass. Gee whiz, Demorat, you sure did fool me. I guess I was too quick to listen to a stranger tell me how to vote when I should have just made the decision for myself. <sighs> but I have to admit, I'm starting to wonder if there's any reason I should vote at all after all this drama. I can't help you, Pennsylvania cowboy child, but I can ask you this. If you think vote don't matter, answer question. Who do you know that is voting for Corona Chocolate Box Man? Hmm, 
well, my brother, my dad, his brother, his dad, his dad's brother, and every single bully I ever had in high school who to this day thinks that they're the first person to come up with the idea of a CrossFit gym. See, you answered the question right there. If you vote, you get secret revenge on high school bully who out of shape. Uh, maybe women keep rights too. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the Bay Area. I'm John Negroni. I'm the box office columnist for Adam Tickets and editor-in-chief of Cinemaholics. And look, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, swing state, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend and he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Ah, wah wah wee wah. From Kansas City, she's the film editor for The Pitch. She has bylines from Slash Film to Crooked Marquee. And as of this week, RogerEber.com. It's Abigail Chessie. Very nice. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on Cinemaholics.com. We also have written reviews on there. Enjoy the site uh, and also other podcasts, of course. You can write into the show anytime, as always. Send us an email, cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in donating to this podcast, you can check out our Patreon. It's on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. You can get exclusive merch through our Patreon and you can get access to our bonus podcasts. We have two of them. One of them has a new episode out this week, our Twilight Zone podcast, a nice place to visit. Sam Nolan and Adonis Gonzalez just released episode three. So definitely check that out. But leaning into off topics here, because we have a full episode, lots of reviews to get to. We're going to be talking about uh, Borat, subsequent movie film, On the Rocks, The Witches. There's a lot this week, and so we're going to get to all of that. But first, off topics, we have our latest Extra Milestone, our film anniversary podcast available on this feed. You can listen to my conversation with Sam Nolan about two incredible films. One of them is one of my favorite films of all time, Goodfellas which came out in 1990, as well as Dog Day Afternoon, which is also celebrating its film anniversary because it came out in 1975. It's a great conversation I had with Sam. And of course, uh, any excuse to rewatch either of those movies or both is a good reason. So <laughs> it's a good situation to be in. Now, okay, I mentioned we have a bunch of reviews to get to, but you know, off year last week, Abby, Will, and I were kind of like, what are we going to review? Because there are so many movies just kind of coming out in one week. And then the following following week, there's not as much. So two of the films we decided to potentially push to next week include the new animated Netflix film, Over the Moon. Well, I think you know a little bit more about this one than I do. Uh, I think you kind of told us off the air you weren't super impressed with it so far because you started the movie. But do you know who made it? Because I'm forgetting, honestly. Uh, Honestly, I don't. Um, I just just watched maybe like 10 or 15 minutes of it. um, Prioritize the other movies we're talking about instead. But wasn't really my thing so far. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and watch the whole thing. Um, I know critics have been kind of mixed on it. I've seen some reviews that were middling and some reviews that were pretty high so um maybe it'll win me over as i keep watching but for now i wasn't super impressed with it unfortunately john i believe that's gil keen who directed it and he's a former disney animator that's right yeah because uh, it's supposed to have some of the disney pixar charm uh, you know supposedly so i hope that carries over for my watch yeah it's definitely copying their homework i'll say that much 
Uh, the other film that we are looking to review next week is Synchronic. Now, this one's a little bit trickier because it's only playing in theaters. We weren't able to get access to a screener. I've heard good things about this movie. And Abby, I think you saw it a year ago. And I think worst case, we'll have to have like a review next week where you're the only one who can kind of maybe vaguely talk about your experience seeing that film a, a while back. But yeah, because I, I don't think I'll be able to check this one out. Oh, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I'm I'm excited that it's getting a getting a good release. Um, it would be great to see it in an actual theater, but um, I'll we'll, we'll take what we can get. It's a pretty it's a pretty solid and interesting movie. So if we do get the chance to talk about it, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, fingers crossed. We'll try to work something out. We'll see what happens. But okay, before we move on to the reviews, we have a listener voicemail to play for you all. Now, for those of you who don't know, we do listener voicemails through an app called Swell. You can find a link to it in the show notes. And if you go to our profile, Cinemaholics Podcast, you can leave us a voice message that we can play on the show. We ask all kinds of questions. And last week we asked you all, okay, what are movies you're willing to watch with your partners? family i think this is a fun question and then we're gonna we're gonna play this voicemail and then talk about the prompt for next week but this is from username callie gooner so if i'm being honest i don't think that i've ever watched a movie with my my partner's family part of that has to do with the fact that we just don't really get together for those sorts of things. And I think also part of it is that we just have vastly different tastes. But one thing that we do have in common is our, our shared love of Disney movies and whatever you want to say about, you know, Disney as a company, a lot of those films uh, have a very, very special place in a lot of people's hearts. So I would say that if we did watch something, it would most likely be one of those films. So this is, this is interesting because yeah, I think a lot of the responses I've gotten have ranged from, oh, I don't watch movies with my partner's family, which I guess I kind of get because that is very risky territory. I don't know, Will and Abby, if like over the years people you've dated and if you've run into that problem. I think I've just, I watch so many movies that inevitably I end up seeing things with all, all types of people. But that was our question. Thank you for answering. And next week we're going to be asking, what are you going to do for Halloween this year? It's an interesting year for Halloween. And if you aren't going to do anything in particular, are you going to be wearing any costumes? I like choosing costumes that are kind of, you know, pop culture happy. I have to say, Abby will. I think this is the first Halloween in many years that I have zero plans. Uh, I, I'm not I don't have a costume lined up. I don't have a party to go to or do anything for I'm just going to be staying at home. But um, Abby, what about you? Do you have a what are you doing for Halloween this year? That's that's a good question. I'm not really sure either. Um, I am kind of experimenting with different ways to um, remotely deliver candy to any kids that might come by my house. Um, but I imagine that that will be pretty light on the ground. Um, but I also might just have friends over for a, a backyard um, fire pit so we can be socially distanced and also kind of enjoy the holiday. But yeah, for now, fun. I'm not really sure. Yeah. If I was trick-or-treating, I would be really scared of getting coronavirus chocolates, but uh, I know I've heard that that's a big issue in some other places. But okay, Will, what about you? Uh, any Halloween plans? I know you like to watch spooky movies around this time. Yeah, I mean, I do my horror marathon, so I'll, I'll try to squeeze in a film. Uh, my friend has a pretty big backyard, and we were talking about having like a small get-together where we'll dress up in our costumes and hang out. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. If that falls through, um, I know one drive-in near me is doing a John Carpenter double feature 
of Halloween and the thing. And I'm tempted to go see that. So I can at least, you know, get, get something out of Halloween, especially since it's on a Saturday, it'd be a shame to, to waste it. Although, I mean, nowadays, you know, what, what is the weekend and what is the week anymore? I don't even <laughs> really know, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll do something for sure. I don't, I don't imagine I'll be in my house twiddling my thumbs uh, in my Halloween costume, but who knows at this point, <laughs> wait, what's your costume? Uh, I'm going to do, um, since I have this beard now, I'm going to do walking Phoenix from I'm still here. Oh, that's um, perfect. Just put on some uh, sunglasses and rattle up my hair a little <laughs> bit and, and do that. So I think that's my idea and I'll have to throw a mask on, but that's my idea. Love for it. Now. Definitely got to post that on Instagram so we can all see it. Uh, Abby, uh, did you have a costume plan or nah? Uh, I, I do not. However, I could also, um, always just bring out my, uh, award-winning Borat lookalike costume contest yes. outfit. So uh, I, I won the again. Borat lookalike contest and yeah, in, in college and you know what they say, everything old is new again. So just break out my, my fake mustache and my dad's old suit. Some would say 14 years too late. I think we could all say 14 years too soon, maybe because Hey, Borat three. Uh, all right. I think that's a pretty decent transition. A good segue to get into our first review of the week. Let's talk about Borat subsequent movie film. Fourteen years ago, I released movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee land to carry out secret mission. I go to America! Borat! What do you say? No, it's not me. Borat, come back! People make recognize my face. I would need disguises. This man is a sex criminal? No, no sex criminal. I will take this to be a fat <laughs> like American man. Yeah? This is a good one. <laughs> Where is his crumb? I'm here to give my daughter as a gift to someone close to the throne. I need dress with real sexy peels. Uh, this is a bag that just goes oh, over the dress. They're nice. I really like this. You could also call this film Borat 2. It's the sequel to the 2006 film. The full title, as we tend to get from Sasha Baron Cohen, is Borat's subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Now, unlike Will and Abby, I cannot do a very good Borat impression. Um, I'm very sorry. So I, I open it to either of you two if you want to do your own uh, impressions throughout this review. I, I definitely welcome it. Okay. <laughs> I'll surprise you with mine, I guess. I'll, I'll sneak them in <laughs> yeah. throughout the review. All right. This is the featured directorial debut of Jason Wollner. And of course, this stars Sasha Baron Cohen as the fictional journalist from Kazakhstan, commonly known as Borat. Now, the 2006 film was a huge sensation. I remember when that film came out, I was 15, 16 years old, and it was everywhere for the longest time time people were making all of the jokes and we were watching the clips on youtube and i have to be honest uh so that movie borat cultural learnings of america for make benefit glorious nation of kazakhstan i never watched like start to finish I i've seen like most of it at this point but the only time that i ever like experienced the full film was on a road trip to texas 
I was with a bunch of people and they decided they were going to watch the movie in the car while I was driving during my turn to drive. So that was the first time. What a road trip, (laughs) watching a road trip movie on a road trip. That's pretty cool though. Yeah, we were fun that way, I guess. But yeah, I, I had to listen to all of the jokes and it was, it was fun. I mean, obviously it's a very funny movie. I think a lot of people would call it very timeless. So I think some people were kind of surprised that 14 years later, we'd be getting a sequel to Borat because I think kind of the magic of that film was the surprise. And this film, the sequel even addresses the fact that Borat has to wear disguises now because people like recognize him. He's a pop culture, a recognizable pop culture icon. Right. So I was kind of wondering myself going into this sequel, well, you know, what is, what can this movie be? I think the whole point of the first movie was to get people to say and do things in America that were outrageous, right? And that was that was where a lot of the humor came from. That's where a lot of the commentary came from. And so the first thing that we see in this movie, the kind of wise move that Cohen does with this screenplay, which he did with a bunch of other people, is to introduce a new character, a new foil to Borat, his daughter, uh, named Tutar, who is played by Maria Bakalova. And this movie really rests on her shoulders because she has to help Cohen really sell this bit to people and make at least the movie seem authentic. Like you're really experiencing Americans doing these crazy things that you can't believe, especially in the era of COVID. You get the sense that they didn't set out to make this movie about COVID, but they were literally shooting it while all this was going on, apparently. And we're not going to talk about it in detail because it is a very spoilery thing, but I think what's put this movie in the news cycle this past week is a scene at the climax of the film that involves something related with Rudy Giuliani, the personal lawyer of the current president. And it is pretty insane. Uh, We will talk about it and at least a little bit toward the end of this review, but we'll give you all a little bit of a warning because it, it could potentially take away from people's experience if they know this scene going in. So we'll avoid talking about that for now, but I want to start with you. Abby Olchesi, professional Borat impersonator and lookalike contest winner. What did yeah, you think? Award-winning, I guess. Award-winning Borat fan. What do you think of Borat's subsequent movie film? It's nice. Sorry, I, I had to I had to do that. Um ah, surprised me in the first one. Okay. <laughs> it's part of the contract as a as a former Borat lookalike contest winner. I have to I have to start off any review of Borat by saying is nice. Um I, I liked it okay. I think the uh, the thing that um, the thing that was so interesting about the first movie it, you mentioned is just the the um, kind of the shock that you have at the responses that he gets out of people um, that are like that unvarnished and that ridiculous. Um, and I think the thing that was interesting about watching it this time around was that it was kind of diminished, not because the joke wasn't funny anymore, but because those responses no longer surprise me. Um, so I feel like there's there's certain there's there's a certain amount of self-awareness, I think, of that within Sasha Baron Cohen's work on this too. Um, is that he knows that the most ridiculous things that he got people to say last time and the most insane experiences that he got to have last time are probably not going to be that shocking this time around just because the world has changed so much, not necessarily because we already saw the first movie. Um, but I do think that the introduction of uh, Tutar is is really good uh, in getting fresh responses out of people, but I think also um, in kind of adding a new 
layer of uh, of cultural criticism on top of what was already there, um, because uh, part of the deal with with Tutar is that she um, she looks more like Borat at the beginning of the movie than she does at the end, uh, and uh, she she is part of a bribe that's going to be offered. And so, in order to make her attractive, he wants to make her look like an attractive American woman, which just so happens to be like the Fox News archetype, right? So, like blonde hair, fake tan tight dress. Um, so there's, there's a lot of commentary going on with that particular introduction as well. Um, but yeah, overall I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. It didn't make me like scream laugh as much as the first movie did, but it did, uh, it did make me think a bit more. Um, and it, I, I, I enjoyed it and I really like the dynamic between Borat and Tutar. It's, it's kind of cute. All right. Yeah. Interesting, interesting take because I, I definitely like this film more than you did but I enjoyed the same things you did. So I'm very curious to get into that in a little more detail. But first, Will Ashton. Borat, I don't know if it's a movie you and I have ever really discussed in on Cinemaholics before because there really haven't been a lot of uh, Baron Cohen films that have really come out in this nature. I think there's Bruno, there's Dictator, but that was years and years ago. Those were obviously like trying to recapture the Borat success. They didn't really do it. But yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little anxious to find out what you have to say about the legacy of this film and now the sequel. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, I think, a little bit when I reviewed the first season of Who is America? I think that was in 2017 or 2018. Oh, yeah, you're right. And I remember you were um, uh, refusing to see it because at the time you you said that you just weren't a fan of Sasha Baron Cohen, weren't a fan of his deal, and you were over like the kind of prank comedy style that he does, which I mean... I have like a mixed relationship to I I remember watching the Ali G show before I watched Borat because I remember Borat was a movie because I was uh, I guess like a preteen when it came out. Like I just remember it kind of like like I was already like half familiar with the film before I saw it. So I don't know if I've ever really gotten a like authentic experience with it. And subsequently revisiting the film, it's kind of hard to look at it critically as well because it just feels like a cultural artifact of its time. It's like going back and like critically evaluating Austin Powers and gold member to me. Cause it's just like that movie is 2002 <laughs> comedy wise in a nutshell for me. And then like 2006 is Borat. And so similar to Abby, I was like, I don't quite know how Borat two is going to work, especially since like Borat as a fixture of pop culture has kind of gone through this weird wave where he is like, you know, when he was introduced to American audiences, like instantly very funny. People love the joke may not understand the joke, but they think it's very funny. Um, you know, after a while, it kind of gets old because it gets so popular. Then it becomes like this sort of like thing that's sustained or like criticized heavily. And then it kind of comes around to being like ironically amusing. And then now uh, just before this movie comes out, it's like reevaluated to the point where it's like, no, that was actually worthy of all the um, praise and all the uh, attention that it got. So I, I do think either indirectly or not, it is smart to make the movie now. I mean, it wouldn't really make sense to do a Borat 2 during the Obama administration, I think. It, it wouldn't really work. I don't see it working, at least. So, I mean, doing it now during the Trump administration does make it... I, I, if there is a time for Borat 2, it is now. And I don't know if it's going to have as much of a shelf life as the first movie will, just because it's so much of the now that um, I don't know if it's going to resonate as much but i do think like i think what you're alluding to I, as a film especially since the first movie is so kind of patchy and just kind of thrown together with like a loose plot with him trying to find pamela anderson this one is a little bit has a little bit more of a backbone to the point where I, it does feel a little bit more structured or i guess scripted to the point where it does have i guess what abby was saying less of the more like shocking or outrageous moments uh comparatively to the first film but i do think 
by and large, this does work uh, in a way that I, I was pretty surprised, at least uh, for the first half, where it is consistently funny. There are a lot of jokes in it. Um, not everything, I think, is working uh, to the same caliber, but it does seem like Sasha Baron Cohen is uh, doing it in a way that is smart and practical and able to be very versatile with it as well, as far as, like you were saying, uh, restructuring or retooling the film based on current events with the coronavirus. And I do believe, yeah, ultimately what makes it work is the central kind of paper moonish uh, relationship between the father and daughter uh, with uh, Tutar and Borat, which is unexpectedly very sweet and endearing as the movie goes along um, in a way that you wouldn't really expect a, a Borat to, to have a heart and to be uh, unexpectedly sweet. But I mean, as a credit to Sasha Baron Cohen being a subversive comedic artist and, and kind of playing with the times and evaluating it and acknowledging like what a Borat 2 needs to be now and not just kind of uh, replaying the same beats and stuff. And for me, I guess like as much as the more outrageous moments, I guess, are going to be uh, talked about or going to be quantified. For me, what makes Borat work are like the little moments. Like for me, like the fax machine scenes are like funnier than like, oh, like yeah. the Dutaton ball <laughs> and stuff like that. Even though the... Uh, Delaton ball, ball scene is fun and like obviously like you said the Rudy Giuliani scene I think the little moments are what what makes Borat Borat you know and uh, yeah I mean I think it works by and large you know it's it's definitely not a consistent film as far as the last I, I, I definitely think the middle segment kind of sags compared to um, the first act and the third act where I, I think it, it kind of finds its way again but uh, by and large I think this is a surprisingly good comedy sequel especially one decades later where three out of four times that just doesn't work so uh props to him yeah i i had a good time with this yeah i just think there's something about the borat character that clearly cohen just has a lot of fun doing this shtick and i applaud him for trying to do this and for even the attempt you know regardless of what some people might think of this as a sequel I think going out there and, and being this creative with this character in a time where it's not easy to do a sequel to such a big hit 14 years ago. And then not only that, but make the movie you make, then the the pandemic hits and then you keep going with it and push for it to come out before the election, which was the this is what Cohen really wanted to do. And, you know, this is a very political movie. I think it was a lot more political than I was expecting. I think what I remember from the first Borat is a movie that was kind of, I, I didn't look at it as something that was very partisan, I guess. Like I felt, I felt like you could watch that movie and just like really laugh at it and find it funny no matter like what you thought of the president or Democrats, Republicans or anything like that. It was just really funny apart from that. And this movie, I don't get that sense as much. I feel like you could watch it and, and you know, maybe be somebody who's just as likely to be like one of the like QAnon supporters that show up in this movie, you know, very, very far to the right politically and still like get on this movie's wavelength, still have fun with it, still laugh with it. Even if you don't necessarily agree with what Cohen is trying to say politically. I don't, I don't know though. I'm mean, curious if that is the case. I haven't really talked to anybody uh, on that side of the political spectrum who's even interested in watching this movie. I think because of the Giuliani stuff, they see it as just sort of like a hit piece against their values and everything. So I, I don't, I don't know what that side is really saying about this. Do you know? Well, well, not exactly, but um, I would just kind of push against what you're saying in that. I do think the first movie, maybe not as overtly political as this one is definitely a piece of political cinema, as far as it being like a commentary on 
the Bush administration, or at least like the end of the Bush administration, the second term, and just commenting on like where America is now and how it views, um, you know, other nations and then just like what its political values are, like what it sees as taboo and what it doesn't see as taboo and more at kind of pushing against those norms and uh, stuff like political social uh, expectations. And so I would definitely, I mean, I definitely can see why it wasn't seen as a political film at the time, but I would hundred percent say it's a political film it, in a political series. It's tough. I mean, honestly, it's been so long since I really saw it. So that might be a part of it. Um, I just wanted to pop in and note that I think the timing probably has a lot to do with it. So the first movie came out in, was it 2006? So yep. it yeah. was, it was into Bush's second term and right. he wasn't going to be reelected at that point. So really, I mean, I feel like the, the point of this coming out now is that it is much more immediate. And so I feel like naturally we're going to feel, we're going to feel like it's a little more pointed. Right, I think it also yeah. is like, it is in fact much more pointed. Um, but I think the timing probably has a lot to do with it too. That's a good point, especially because uh, if you go back to 2006, that's right before the midterms, which were when Democrats like really came out in force uh, in the elections at that time. So uh, no matter what you think of this movie politically, I just, I just think it is an interesting conversation to be had with both sides of the aisle about how it might to what both of you seem to be saying, how it might make you think a little bit and what, what he's saying in this very heated climate. But uh, regardless, yeah, I mean, Abby, you really touched on something that I, I really couldn't shake while I was watching this movie, which is that, yeah, the kind of craziness like exposed in the first movie, it's like mainstream now. Like there is a huge contingent of America that is very upfront about these beliefs, right? Yeah, it's I I feel like I've seen that I've seen a couple people have that reaction too, where like some people just thought it was like riotously funny and some people were like kind of depressed because the the, sure. the response is just sort of like nothing surprises me anymore. Um I I think it it's interesting because like while it becomes a little bit less funny, it does like with the continuum between the first and the second movie, it does kind of make you think a lot about um, about the discourse in general. It almost makes this movie feel a little more, I don't know, dare, dare I say intelligent, um, because I feel like we're not we're not just like poking people to see if they'll say a stupid thing. We know they're going to say a stupid thing. I think the uh, the thing that makes it interesting is like the the context and the reaction and what what it says about I don't know the Borat movies that this is that this is what they do and that it comes out so easily right. what that says about us you can you really you can really tell that Baron Cohen kind of like went into this movie wanting to say something about how social media has probably done more to expose like this very ignorant side of American culture than a Hollywood movie ever could, right? And to the point where like we see things like maybe Grand Theft Auto or whatever that satirize what people say and do in this manner. And it used to be so overt and over the top and now it doesn't really have to anymore. And I, I think that Cohen kind of probably set out to make social media the benchmark for this. Yeah, I I would agree. And actually it made me think too, because when the first movie came out, like Facebook was a thing, but it wasn't the thing that it is now. Right. And Twitter was not in existence. So like when you think about all the stuff that's happened since the first Borat movie, like it really is a completely different world. So I think it's interesting that he comments on that and brings it into into the plot as as part of the uh part of the development that has kind of necessitated the creation of this. Yeah, I think Twitter was 
invented literally in 2006. Yeah. So like when they were making the movie, they just, they had no realm of like what that would eventually turn out to be. Um, but yeah, you know, I kind of mentioned this earlier. I really liked this film. I, I, I just thought, I think you both have said it was pretty, it was pretty funny. Uh, Will, you said it was consistently funny and Abby, you said it didn't make you scream laugh. I, I definitely had a bunch of scream laughs and I was, I, I just found the comedy itself to be so well-written and well-timed. And I really want to give a ton of credit to Maria Bakalova because I think this film Fish. would have been tiring without her, right? It's, it's her unique flair that makes this feel like a sequel that deserved to be made, right? Uh, I'd agree for sure. I thought she gave a very good performance and it's definitely not surprising to me that there is already an Oscar campaign for her performance. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> wow. people forget awesome. that people forget that. Well, I don't know if there's actually a like real Oscar campaign. It's just more like a grassroots thing. But um, I mean, people forget that Sasha Baron Cohen was literally like this close to being nominated for best actor for Borat. He just lost out to um, Ryan Gosling because I think he won the Golden Globe for best actor in a comedy film. And then, like, I guess the Academy was just like, we're not nominating Borat. <laughs> and so they they I think they just gave it like a like best screenplay nomination because that was like they uh, the like kind of passing of the torch. But I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. I mean, I don't, I don't know if she'll get a nom for sure. But I mean, with this year's Oscar race, who knows? But we'll see. But Gosling, he didn't win the award, right? For half. No, Nelson? but he got the like fifth nomination is what I'm saying. Oh, I see. I was a little confused the way you said that. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I, I mean, because right. I remember, Um, I mean, my memory isn't what it used to be, but I remember Ryan Gosling in like Entertainment Weekly was like, I have to thank Sasha Baron Cohen because like I got his nomination <laughs> for this because it was for um, that's funny. Half Nelson, which is in a film. I, I love that movie, but it's not a film that's uh talked about as much compared to Borat. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Abby? Of, of Maria Bakalova. I think she's great. Um, it's she, she really, I think has the, the same, the same kind of level of chameleonic ability that, that Sasha Baron Cohen does, which means that they can play off of each other really well. And you can tell that yeah. these are, these are two performers who get each other's energy very clearly. Um, and yeah, I think, I think she works really well in this. Uh, I would be really curious to see what this means for her in, in the future. Um, because I don't really know kind of where where that goes, but uh, I do think that she she seems like a really full character. She's really sweet and funny, um, and she's not just like kind of a, a transparent two dimensional comedic foil. Like she really feels like a character that goes on a journey um, to the point where like by the end of it, and when they've become like a like a proper team, it's actually kind of heartwarming. So yeah. like she works on a yeah on like a dramatic level as well as a comedic level, which I think is very impressive. Yeah. And I think like, yes, we definitely have to give credit to Baklova who just makes, makes the drama in this. Like it is, it is sweet. It is endearing. It's so surprised. Like I was more surprised by the heart of this movie than any of the comedy, which is kind of bizarre considering this is the sequel to Borat. But again, that kind of ties into what I was saying before about how I just appreciate Cohen trying to do something different here. Is it as timeless and is it as a bit of a whirlwind as the first Borat? Of course not. I don't think they ever had any pretension that it was going to come even close, but that's okay. Like, you know, a sequel doesn't have to necessarily achieve that to be a worthwhile, worthwhile experience. And so that's, that's where my appreciation comes in with this, that there is ambition here, but there isn't any sort of like pretense of like, we really have to top ourselves. Like that's how I felt with Bruno. That's how I felt with the dictator. 
where it's like almost like Cohen had something to prove or I, I don't know if that's the case. And I remember, Will, you mentioned like in 2017, I was, I was feeling the Cohen fatigue and a, a lot of it had to do with those films. I just was not in the mood for anything having to do with this bit or kind of his gotcha sort of tactics. I, but I think like over time, because of this current year, for some reason, I think as we've sort of said already, the timing just really hit. And I, I want to say too, we mentioned Baklova really lending a lot of heart to this, but also some of these side characters from this this woman who babysits uh, <laughs> Maria's character, who ends up having these really touching speeches. And then this kind of possibly divisive sort of like friendship that blossoms between Borat and a pair of QAnon supporters that does make you wonder like how scripted it is that they would let him stay with them. There are some scenes here, if we can maybe criticize it. That's absolutely, I think, scripted, uh, at least to some extent, I think. I don't think it was. I think, though, that there is a lot of stuff that they leave out that explains why these guys like said yes to this. And I think a lot of it oh, is, sure. I think a lot of it that they leave out, which I wish they would include is how they convince people to do certain things in this movie and maybe maybe like including that ending scene which i guess we can talk about in a moment because it just it raises more questions <laughs> than i than i want uh to deal with but before we get into that scene i think that's a good transition into maybe that part of the film let's give our final thoughts and grades here i've said a lot so i'm just gonna say that i'm probably the highest on this i i just think this is a just a really enjoyable experience. I laughed so much and I felt for these characters and as taboo as this thing is and as, as weird and shocking as some of the humor is, I just think it really works here. So yeah, I'm a, a strong B plus on Borat's subsequent film BSM. Uh, but what about you, Abby? What's your your grade for this one and any other final thoughts you want to add? Um, I, I think, John, like you, I was I was surprised at how how sweet I found this movie. Um, and I enjoyed some of the side, the side bits and side characters as well. Um, I also agree with, I think, I think it was Will who said that this is like, it's sort of the small things that make Borat Borat. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of good kind of small gags that I enjoyed this time around. Um, yeah. It's not like the insane whirlwind that the first movie was, but yeah, you're right. It's not like, I wouldn't want it to be, I don't think. Um, plus I feel like achieving that, would be a Herculean effort given where our country has gone. Um, and I think, I think Sasha Baron Cohen knows that. So, um, yeah, I think I would give it, I would give it a B plus as well. Honestly. Um, it's, I think it's the timing is right. The things that it has to say are interesting and kind of multi-layered, especially when you compare it to, um, to the first movie where the world was then, where the world was now. And I think, uh, the uh, the introduction of Maria Bakalova to um, American movie going culture, I think is I think it's going to be a, a choice that pays off in the long term. Absolutely. OK, Will, tell us, you know, why a plus? I mean, that's pretty high. Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's a a version. Of, I, I, I would have to be uh, I'd have to check with myself to see what an a version of Borat would be. But um. No, I think for what this is, I what surprised me, and I already told you this off the air, but what surprised me was that this is actually kind of more like Who is America the movie in the style of Nathan for you, like an episode of Nathan for you, which makes sense. It's a great comparison. Because um the director of this, Jason Wooler or Wolner, um, 
did the claw episode and then the type row episode of Nathan for you. So it makes sense that they brought him on. I'm not quite sure why um, Larry Charles wasn't brought back, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Maybe something to do with that chair as well. I hope not. But uh, I don't know. I mean, they also didn't bring back his friend. And it seems like there's some like uh, some bitterness there because I was listening to an interview that the guy played like his friend in the first movie. So I, I don't mm-hmm. quite know what happened there. But um, in any case, yeah, as far as this movie is concerned, um, I do. The only thing that disappoints me a little bit is that I wish there were some of those like smaller interactions, considering that the first movie, like for as much as people talk about, like um, like the naked hotel fight or like the moments like that or like with the bear and things like that, where like the kind of more like outlandish and then like huge moments of the film. What really like sticks in my mind is like key Borat is like him in that like uh, that trailer house, that trailer where he's with those like frat guys and they're like trying to like make an argument for like why slavery should be back and stuff like that. And like those like him able to coax those responses out of regular people. I feel like it would have been interesting to kind of get that out of more um, kind of everyday people to kind of see like where the progression became for like how we got to this point with like outspoken Trump supporters and stuff like that. But at the same time, like you two were saying, like we're at a point now where it's like transparency is such a thing with uh, Trump supporters. And like, because they feel emboldened to say as much as they do, there, there has to be kind of more of a structure or a scripted aspect to this film uh, that there wasn't with the first film. And I think to some extent that makes the comedy not quite as pungent, but I also think it does bring out some unexpected emotional sincerity, which is, obviously very surprising for a film like Borat 2 uh, and to to talk about the emotional uh, poignancy of a film like Borat 2 is uh, yeah another surprise that we've uh, had in 2020 but in any case I, I think I'm like a soft B on this I think it's fine for what it is I, I enjoy it um, I don't think it's going to be a film like compared to Borat 1 where I'm going to be quoting it as much or like reminiscing on it as much but the fact that it works is a success on its own and uh yeah, I'm just glad that it actually works, which is for me what I really wanted out of a Borat sequel. And uh, you can't go wrong with that. That is uh, very nice. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt you. But yeah, the way what you said there did remind me that, yeah, if if it had just sort of been a get Trump supporters to say silly things or outrageous things, it, the Daily Show has been doing that for like the last few years with like the Jordan Klepper segments. It's like, we've seen that before. So I, I do appreciate that there is something different here. There is a sort of like timing with the COVID stuff that is, it's very unique to right now. I don't think this movie is going to age super well, but it is probably going to be a very good representation of what 2020 was like in the first half, at least. Uh, particularly, there is a scene where, we literally hear like Mike Pence saying that there's only 15 cases of coronavirus in America. And it's it's a scene where you're just you clearly understand what they're going for here, where he's like, we are ready for what's going to happen. There's only in the last two weeks, there's only one case. And like, yeah, in hindsight, it is just kind of like, wow, <laughs> you know, considering what has happened since. Obviously, like I mentioned before, that's a very politically charged thing. So a lot of people might be watching that and be like have their own uh, take of course but all right so there is on that wavelength there is a scene toward the end of this film it is probably the big climax although there is there is a bunch of stuff that happens after this scene that i wasn't expecting some twisty things there is uh a celebrity cameo which might be my favorite cameo of the year and i I definitely won't give it away but (laughs) it is pretty that that blew my mind (laughs) more than the really gritty giuliani stuff but sorry go ahead yeah no you're right you're right good to bring that up but we won't spoil it 
But yeah, so the Rudy Giuliani thing, this hit the news this past week. The story here is that Giuliani got caught uh, doing some inappropriate uh, activities uh, with Maria Bakalova, who was posing as this sort of like, yeah, like OAN reporter pretending to be like a Fox News kind of personality thing. And she's like flirting with Giuliani in the movie. And there is now like photos of what it looks like. He he claims he was like tucking or untucking his shirt or something. He's lying down in the bed with her. They've been drinking. They're in a hotel room after an interview. And it looks like, yeah, he just has like his hand down his pants. He's in a situation where clearly, and I don't, I don't understand why this is even like debatable. He's trying to get laid here. I mean, that's, that's it. Like that's what's happening. I would say the word is compromising. It, the footage just looks compromising, whether it's damning or, um, you know, actual evidence. I, I, I guess people are kind of being a little bit looser as far as like the journalistic approach. But I, the word I've been using is compromising. I don't know if that's, Th- one that's a good use. word for it. Yeah. And, and we have to be clear, you know, like I looked this up, like part of the reason it doesn't go any further than that. So Borat has to step in and basically expose the whole thing and like Giuliani huffs out and all of that. They had to do that because of if there's a secret camera and if it had caught any more, they would probably be in a lot of legal trouble because it's illegal to record someone secretly doing a sexual act. So there's like a lot of huff about this right now. And a lot of like, I, I think it's all noise and all, all I feel is just a sort of like, well, first of all, there's a lot of who cares being attributed to this because it's this isn't new information. This isn't something like people aren't going to watch this and be like shocked that Rudy Giuliani, like the current president, like has admitted, has bragged on tape, like re- secretly recorded tape of sexual assault. It, it's it's not like any of this is surprising. And I don't think anybody watching this who sides with Giuliani is going to think that this is dismissible because they haven't found anything else dismissible. So personally, I just I just find it to be a weird moment, but also one where I did find it just gross that this person, you know, did this. And I, I don't know, I have I have mixed feelings about it. What, what do you think about this, Abby, this whole thing? Yeah, I'm I'm a little mixed on it, too. Um, I, I think it looks like what is being said happened happened um it's i i don't even if you're tucking in your shirt or removing a microphone i don't know why it would take that long or why you need to lie on a bed to do it to uh to paraphrase Alyssa wilkinson but um yeah i i think i i i think it's not terribly surprising that it goes down the way that it does um i guess if, you if you're oh. sorry yeah well <laughs> no pun know. intended womp womp um but i guess if you're if you're dead set against, against Giuliani, like a lot of people are like, you might find it to be a funny joke. It is kind of amazing in terms of like a feat of, of filmmaking that they actually managed to get that done. Um, but in, in terms of anything else, I feel like that's maybe the most impressive thing about it that they were able to pull it off in the first place. Yeah. Like it even made me wonder how, cause there was a deleted scene, which I think I shared with you will where she was actually snuck into the white house doing this and they didn't include it in the movie for a reason I don't understand, but she was able to get in like close contact with an OAN reporter who's in like the press briefing. She was able to meet Donald Trump jr. And so I don't know. I was like, wait, this could have been in the movie too. I mean, that's kind of insane. And I am curious why they left that out, but yeah. So will, uh, what did, what did you think of this whole thing? Uh, I know you're probably the biggest fan of Giuliani on this pipe. No, I won't say that. Character assassination. Oh man, yeah, to say the least. He's America's um, mayor, John. Yeah, sorry. 
Um, yeah, I really don't know what happened to Giuliani as a person because he seemed fairly normal in like 2001. But I was like Mr. Ten. Deeds, and you know. yeah, I was like you know like in the single digits. So I don't. I'm not the oh, wait, no, the best. Anger management. That was his. Sorry. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I don't remember him, Mr. Deeds, but it has been a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I I think no matter what, people are going to see what they want to see out of the footage. I guess like if where you lean on it politically might might influence it, but. I, like I said before, it is compromising to me, at least like it, it does. It doesn't look <laughs> it doesn't look like the opposite of what it is uh, as far as like how it's presented in the film. And the fact that he is dumb enough to go into the hotel room with a bunch of cameras around uh, uh, suggests that um, he may not be uh, the most rational mind at the moment for uh, as far as uh, whether or not he would do something like this. But um, yeah, I mean, I think most people going into the movie and uh as far as like watching a scene will have an opinion of it uh that might align with their politics but for me at least it, it didn't look uh didn't look good on his end to say the least i agree with you there yeah <laughs> i guess that's a good place to leave it you know if we were like a political podcast or something i guess we could keep talking about all of it but i guess it does it doesn't really lend much to the film itself so not much else I guess we need to add. So B's and B pluses for us on the new Borat film. And I'm glad. I'm glad that it, this wasn't a train wreck because that's kind of what I was nervous about. I wasn't even sure if this would be our feature review because I just wondered if we would have much to talk about if it was a film that was really going to have much of an impact. And lo and behold, you even last week said you weren't going to watch this. So the fact I that wasn't you, planning on it. Yeah. No. So, um, I mean, that's a feat in and of itself. Well, the Giuliani thing is incredible marketing because then sure. it became like a Laurel Yanni, you know, Laurel Yanni or whatever that is thing where people are like, you have to watch the movie and make up your mind on that scene. But I'm glad that the film is so much more than the headlines. It really is. It's something else entirely. And I think a lot of people will enjoy it who do check it out. So you can watch it for yourself on Amazon Prime Video. We had quite a long review on this one. I think it was worth it, though. I think it's a film worth discussing in a lot of detail. All right, I'm here with Extra Milestone host Sam Noland for a nice little sidebar, nice little moment away from the monotony of Cinemaholics. Hey, Sam. Hey, John. It's good to be here. And listen, let's just cut right to the chase. We yes. have a great podcast for the listeners to check out. That's right. We're here to tell you about The Pop Culture Show, which is one of the top pop culture podcasts it's awesome. They have amazing guests, really funny segments, which I know our listeners, they're all about funny segments. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part, they have some incredible giveaways, Sam. Yeah, these giveaways are not something that you're going to want to just just blink twice at, if that even means anything. And it's, I'll, I'll have you know that all three of the hosts, Barnes, Leslie, and Cubby, have been in radio and television for many years, many more than us, as a matter of fact, and have tons of connections to real in guests that other podcasts just don't have access to. So this is what sets the yes. pop culture show apart. Yes. As podcasters ourselves, we know getting, getting guests is actually really hard. <laughs> uh, it does take a lot of experience and connections and all that fun stuff. And you will definitely get that with the Pop Culture Show. But okay, you want to hear about the giveaway. Yeah. I do too. So this month, the Pop Culture Show is giving away a free, that's right, free four-night stay to one of the best resorts in the Caribbean. Now, I'm from the Caribbean, um, so I definitely put my stamp of approval on this place. It's called Cat Maison Resort and Spots in St. Lucia. It is awesome. Mm. And Sam, how do I, how do I qualify to 
get this free Fortnite stay. How do I do it? John, I'll tell you. Now, you're probably thinking that it's a very complicated process, lots of digital hoops to jump through, not this giveaway. To get qualified for this Fortnite stay, all you have to do is listen to the pop culture show. That's all That's it right. takes. Yeah. Very simple. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, I want to listen. Where are the episodes? All right, here's all that info. Pretty mm -hmm. easy. They have new episodes dropping every Monday at 10 a.m. Again, that's Monday at 10 a.m. Mondays at 10 a.m. And so, yeah, just subscribe to the Pop Culture Show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, anywhere you get podcasts. They're all over the place. Sam and I were talking earlier about how annoying it is sometimes that some podcasts, they, they're hard to find. Like you're trying yeah. to, I just want to subscribe. And uh, this is one of the pop culture shows, one of the ones that makes it pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, so this is your, your one-stop shop, so to speak, for the latest celebrity news, funny observations from the massive, ever-expanding world of pop culture, and just an all-around fun podcast for you to check out, which I know is never a bad selling point. It is the pop culture show. That is a big reason we wanted to share it with you. We all we know you all want to have some fun. You'll definitely get that with the Pop Culture Show. But okay, you can get more info on the Pop Culture Show and of course that free vacation mm. by going to thepopcultureshow.com. So easy. Thepopcultureshow.com. Check it out. You will be glad you did. Let's move on to a, another film. This is a A24 release. It is now streaming on Apple TV Plus, and it's called On the Rocks. This is the latest film written and directed by Sofia Coppola. It's kind of a dramedy that leans a little bit more into comedy, although I guess it, it's almost like equal weight. It is the story of a father and daughter, played by Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, who sort of go on this affair caper Uh in a sense where Rashida Jones's character suspects that her husband, played by Marlon Wayans, might be cheating on her. So they live in New York City. So this is a very New York film. It is lovely to watch in that way. And Rashida Jones's character decides that if she's going to find out if her father is cheating or her uh, husband is cheating, she should recruit essentially her father, who quickly jumps at the chance, Bill Murray, to find out for himself because he himself was quite a philanderer with Rashida Jones's mother. So there's a lot he tries to impart on her on why men can be cheating scumbags and some of the relationship dynamics, the gender dynamics you'd see in a lot of classic comedies of this genre. I'm thinking of films like You've Got Mail or When Harry Met Sally. And even though this isn't like a very like a romantic kind of comedy drama, uh, it has elements of it. And this, I have to say, it is a sweet film. It is a chill film. I had such a good time watching this. And I'm not going to say that it's amazing or that it's one of Coppola's best, but I just really had a positive experience. I love both of these performances. I thought I had this thought during the film where I was wondering why Rashida Jones doesn't have more leading roles like this with directors this talented, because I think she and Murray really bounce off each other incredibly well. And I I just found myself thinking, you know, if we're going to watch movies that were filmed pre-COVID that have people kind of going to fun locations and being in bars and doing lots of fun things like that, I'm glad it's one that takes place in New York because I felt a little bit like a ping of recent nostalgia watching the film. Now, okay, 
Abby, tell me what you thought of On the Rocks. Um, I liked On the Rocks. I thought it was it was mostly pretty charming. Um, I think uh, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray are they're they're a really good comic team. They they bounce off things really well together. Um, and I think uh, Bill Murray lends a lot of his like kind of chill charm to the character that he's playing, Felix. Um, he's he's a he's a really rich guy um, and has a lot of money to throw around, but is not a jerk about it. He just seems to really enjoy like classy things. So like he picks up Laura Rashida Jones's character uh, to go and do a stakeout and uh, check out her husband and see what he's up to. Uh, during a like a work dinner meeting and he brings like a little sports car like a vintage sports car that has a terrible motor um, and like a can of uh, caviar and some crackers because those are like perfect stakeout snacks right so like that's that's the kind of person that he is where he will um, suggest something grand and then do it whether or not you think it's a good idea Um, and it's 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 pretty fun to watch him do that Um, I did find myself wishing that uh, the movie had spent a little more time fleshing out the relationship between uh, Rashida Jones's character and her husband's character, um, just because the scenes that they have together, the way that they talk to each other, it it genuinely feels like they don't know each other, which might be part of the point. Like, this is sort of a weird part in her marriage where she's trying to figure it out. But like, it, it feels even worse than that. Like, it feels like people who have maybe been dating for a while and are kind of vaguely aware of what the other person is doing. That's funny. Um, and <laughs> yeah. And, and to me, it feels like that is, I don't know if failure is the right term, but I think it kind of exposes the fact that there's not a ton else apart from the, um, the father daughter relationship that gets, uh, really developed with any, with any great amount of detail, which I think is kind of to the movie's detriment. Like we know that Laura is a writer, that she's writing a book. We don't know what the book is about. There's kind of a vague suggestion that it might be in Italian for reasons I don't understand. Um, and we know that her husband works in some form of marketing, but we don't know what that is. And I mean, I'm not saying that I want like a dossier with details on everything they do, but I feel like a little more effort might have made those relationships slightly easier to flesh out. That's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't consider that criticism you're bringing up of the relationship. I guess I guess the film's magic trick just kind of worked on me with that and the jobs. I was never really curious about it. Yeah, I guess I just was satisfied personally with, yeah, they're in a rut. And that sort of like that awkwardness kind of helps sell that. Uh, at least it did for me. I did appreciate that this does feel like almost like Bill Murray's character is like it's his lost in translation character just years later almost. And so it's, it's great to see them reuniting uh, Coppola and Murray and uh, definitely not as good of a, as a film as lost in translation. I don't think it, it can <laughs> with what it's really setting out to do here, but uh, I'll also say some of the side performances before we get to you will uh, Jessica Henwick has kind of a small role. She doesn't get too much to do here, but she's kind of like a more, more of a Rebecca kind of character in some ways. And then we also have Jenny Slate who, Really, again, not very important to the plot, but she really makes an impression in this movie. I wasn't expecting. Uh, she just has some really great lines. So, uh, but okay, Will Ashton, what did you think of On the Rocks? Do you like this movie like you like your whiskey? Um, I actually don't really care for rocks uh, in my drinks, but I, I did enjoy the film Same nevertheless. Um, yeah, I like my uh, uh, drink smooth, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I do appreciate that Sofia Coppola finally let bill murray play the role he's been born to play which is bill murray um and i don't mean to say that as if like he's giving a bad performance it's just a very bill murray type performance but i do think to the film's credit like 
uh, I, I was like, I was fine with it when it started out. I wasn't like totally into it when it was setting up with Rashia Jones character and Marlon Wayne's. Um, I do agree with Abby. It didn't feel like there was like a ton of chemistry there, but the fact that there is supposed to be some emotional distance uh, between them, I think made it work nevertheless. Uh, but yeah, when it is the um, uh, Bill Murray and Rashia Jones hour, uh, I, I do think they're, they're kind of warm father-daughter chemistry and just the way that Bill Murray is just basically able to flirt the pants off of anybody who is around him while just basically fitting into this role like a well-worn glove uh, is uh, just, you know, it, it's Sofia Coppola doing what she does best. Um, I've had kind of like a back and forth relationship with her work. Like some of her films, I really do love. Like I, I think Virgin Suicides is a fantastic film. Uh, and Agreed. I like Marie, uh, Marie Antoinette. I like a lot. I think I like that a little bit more than you do, John. Um, and obviously Lost in Translation. Very good. Uh, wasn't really crazy about like Somewhere and um, uh, what was the one? Bling Ring. I wasn't crazy about. I like the way it looked. I wasn't yeah. super invested in it emotionally. But I think the way like what she does best typically, I think, is is able to have this kind of casual, uh, almost somewhat emotionally distant vibe from her characters, but in a way that. It, she's able to communicate a lot of the inner turmoil and a lot of the more kind of mild mannered emotions that are in play there. And I, I think those are the reasons why this movie uh, really plays their strengths. I, I do agree that with the sentiment that you two have expressed and that this is a very mild mannered and uh, slight film, I guess, in her filmography. Um, I believe it's the third one she made with Bill Murray after a very Murray Christmas, which was a kind of similar thing where that's just basically just Bill Murray hanging out and trying to have a good time. Uh, and this movie is is sort of similar, but it has a little bit more of a emotional backbone to it in a way that um, I mean, you, you can expect where it's going. I, I don't think anyone's going to be shocked with where this goes, but I don't think it's trying to do that either. It, it plays it out very reflexively. It, it kind of lets you wash over the uh, the backstory and the the, the emotions that are uh, kind of undercurrent throughout the film. But in a way that I don't, I found it certainly effective and engaging and uh while i wasn't instantly taken by it i, I was able to be charmed uh and uh and gratified by the experience just because sofia coppola is very good just making casual but unexpectedly sweet films that uh do play to strength for performers and obviously she usually gets some of bill murray's best performances and there's no exception here so i had a good time with this one for sure yeah, I think the the words for this movie, I think we've all said it at least once. Yeah, casual, sweet, charming, very, very easy film to sort of describe here. And I, I have to say I had a <laughs> I had a weird observation with this film while I was watching it where like early on in the film I was like, oh, OK, this is like Chloe, but Bill Murray is playing the Amanda Seyfried role. <laughs> and then I immediately decided I should no longer have any opinions on any film. But OK. On the rocks, it's a lean 96 minutes. Very easy to watch in one sitting. Let's do our final thoughts and grades here. Abby Olchesi, what would you give On the Rocks? Um, I think I would give it like a high B minus. Uh, I think it's 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 charming and enjoyable, and I think Bill Murray is great in it. Uh for me, some of the other areas that were lacking made me enjoy it that much less but um overall it's i think it's an entertaining way to to spend a, a nice tidy 90 minutes of your time sounds good and what about you will uh not too far from that i was between a b minus and b myself um i think i'm going to go with a slight b b on it 
um, just because I, I did enjoy it. I think Sofia Coppola made the movie she wanted to make. And the fact that uh, it, it is able to be such a New York film without being like too showy or like too navel gazing or annoying, especially with the uh, affluent, you know, high society characters. Uh, the fact she's able to make this fairly relatable and sweet and appealing without it ever getting too annoying and uh, too aggressively like uh, unappealing in that respect is, is something that I have to really credit for, for, for getting right this time around. As I said before, sometimes I find she doesn't quite get the balance right. And I, I, I don't quite connect with her characters or her films, but this is one of those examples where I think it's kind of middle of the road for her, like as far as her like filmography, probably like a middle tier, like maybe like her like fifth best film as far as the ones I've seen. But, Certainly one I, I was able to engage with and ultimately get taken by. And uh, Bill Murray's presence is always welcome in a role like this. He does. Uh, he It plays his strengths. And I, I, I know Sofia Coppola has a lot of reverence and uh, uh, affection for him as a performer, as well as uh, just as a screen presence in general. And uh, yeah, I would hope they do more films together. If not, um, I'm happy with the ones we've gotten so far. So a slight but warm B for me. All right. Yes, I, I really enjoy Coppola's films. We didn't mention it, but I did enjoy The Beguiled from a few years ago. I know we reviewed it on this show, and, you know, that's not a film that really had a huge impression with me. That's a film that I would probably say is kind of mid-tier for her. Although, of her films, I actually haven't seen somewhere, so I can't really put that anywhere on a, a list. But, yeah, if I had to, like, maybe rank her films... I'm probably close to where you are, Will. For me, like between this and Marie Antoinette is probably where I would place it with Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation easily being like the top tier for Coppola as a director. All that said, I really enjoyed this. I really like seeing Rashida Jones, like I said before, just getting more opportunities to shine as a lead actress. I think she's really good. And I think, you know, it's funny because I was trying to describe this movie to my partner and I was like, yeah, you know, there's Bill Murray and there's also Rashida Jones. And I was trying to tell her about like, cause she, she didn't know the name. And so I was like, well, there's Parks and Recreation, but she had never seen that. There's The Office, but she hadn't seen a lot of episodes. And I was like, yeah, wow. You know, besides like, I love you, man. And you know, like a few indie films here and there, there just aren't a lot of like Rashida Jones roles that I think a ton of people are aware of, which is kind of a shame. She's really talented. Yeah, for sure. I just realized as you're talking, though, that this is the second father daughter film <laughs> that we're reviewing on this show. I didn't I don't know why I didn't make yeah, that connection right. earlier. But that is <laughs> a lot of funny. similarities <laughs> in some ways. But yeah, so for me, I am a solid B on On the Rocks. B for Bourbon or B for Bill, I guess. <laughs> I really enjoyed this and I hope other people have a chance to see it as well. This has been a year where we haven't gotten a ton of A24 films really like breaking any sort of like cultural conversations which is a shame and we're getting minari pretty soon but yeah of the ones that have come out this year on the rocks is definitely one that is worth seeing along with the uh, uh i guess yeah i'm blanking on the other a24 films um well yeah uh first cow I yeah think i was gonna say first other, cow major one and then there's the green knight coming out sometime someday when <laughs> yeah <laughs> you let me know when that happens because i want to see it yeah but again, on the rocks, it is now available to stream on Apple TV Plus. It had a limited theatrical release. It made six hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars at the box office, which is not bad considering uh, the uh, COVID restrictions. But yeah, I think that release is winding down at this point. Let's get to our next film. So we we kind of saved more of our Halloween themed movies for the end of the show, which is kind of surprising, I guess. But I guess it just sort of speaks to the strength of the first two films we chose to discuss. But 
This next one is a remake of the 1990 film. I think it's 1990. The Witches. And this is a dark fantasy comedy directed by Robert Zemeckis. And also he, uh, I think, co-wrote it with Guillermo del Toro and Kenya Barris. And I have to admit, I've never read the Royal Doll novel from 1983. I've also never really seen the whole movie of The Witches. I've definitely seen parts. I'm pretty aware of the story and everything. But yeah, I, I, I know there's another adaptation of the novel, but I, I'm not even, I don't even know much about that one either. To, so, so to be totally honest, The Witches is just not my thing. It's just something that I've just never been that into. Uh, I'm sure Abby and Molly have a chance to air if that is the case for either of you. Uh, that said, this film stars Anne Hathaway, Octavia Spencer, Stanley Tucci. It's narrated by Chris Rock. And like uh, a film that we're going to talk about, uh, I think, right after this, the main character, I don't think, has a name, um, which is uh, kind of interesting. Uh, the uh, main character here is played by Jazir Kadim Bruno, who plays a boy named Hero Boy, is how he's officially casted. So there's that. The Witches. Let's talk about this film. It's now available to stream on HBO Max. It's interesting because I think this is going to be one of the last HBO Max original films under the Warner Max label. We found out the news this past week that Warner Max, which kind of set out, I think, in February, kind of terrible timing. They had originally planned to produce 10 films. Of those films we've talked about include like Unpregnant, American Pickle, this film, the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. And it looks like HBO Max is kind of doing like a reorg at this point. Like they still have New Line. They still have Warners. It's kind of unclear if they're still going to do original films or how that's going to work. But regardless, that production wing appears to be on its way out. And so that's interesting timing with the release of this film with that context in mind. But uh, Abby Olchesi, what is The Witches all about? And did you find yourself bewitched by the story? John, first of all, you should have seen the face that I made when you said that you had not read the Roald Dahl book or seen the Nick Rogue movie or had not seen the whole thing because both of those were large parts of my childhood. Um, Sorry, I was more of a James and the Giant Peach kind of kid. Well, I was big on James and the Giant Peach too, so that's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, The Witches is about a young boy who is orphaned at the beginning of the story and taken in by his grandmother, uh, who in the movie is played by Octavia Spencer. And she's kind of a, um, no nonsense, but also very, very fun and interesting and imaginative woman. Um, in, in the book, I think she smokes cigars. That's her kind of trademark. Uh, that does not happen in the movie, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, the two of them are having a great time living together, um, until, the boy encounters a witch in their in their small town and his grandmother has some experience in her life previously with witches and knows that they need to get out of town as soon as possible so they go to a, a fancy hotel and decide to lay low there for a little while um because witches hate children and they don't want the little boy to be a victim of a witch but unbeknownst to them the hotel they have chosen to stay in is like the head the the location of a convention of witches led by the Grand High Witch, who's played by Anne Hathaway. Uh, and they show up at the hotel to have their conference, and the little boy uh, tries to spy on them alongside his his own his pet mouse. Um, and uh, it turns out that the witches have gathered because they have developed a potion that will turn children into mice. Uh, and the more you use, the quicker it happens. So um, 
the uh, the little boy is turned into a mouse. He finds out that his pet mouse uh, actually is a former child that was turned into a mouse. And another boy in the hotel, a uh, little, little rich white boy, um, he is also turned into a mouse. And so the three of them have to work with Octavia Spencer to bring down the Grand High Witch and try and see if they can reverse the spell. Um, in terms of quality, I, I'm a big fan of the uh, the original 1990 movie. There are some of it that is a little bit weird and doesn't quite work. Um, but mostly I just remember how, how genuinely frightening I found it as a kid. Um, but that is largely gone, I think from the, uh, the new version. And it's also anchored by a performance from Anne Hathaway that I think has been really divisive. Some people have really enjoyed it. I really did not. Uh, she seems to be doing some kind of very strange fake Swedish accent that I think Zemeckis just told her go big and she went as big as possible and nobody told her no. Um, it, it really bugged me and kind of took me out of the movie. Uh, Angelica Houston's performance in the the 1990 movie, I think is, um, I think it is also a bit campy, but it fits that performer so well that it doesn't really come off as over the top the way that it does with, uh, with Hathaway's character. Um, and there's also like, uh, like a lot of more recent Zemeckis movies, uh, a lot of reliance on um, CGI stuff. Uh, he does things with the witch's mouths that are, kind of frightening, um, but also not that unique. They just essentially look like venom when they get angry, they open their jaws real big. Yeah. Or Joker kind of. Yeah. Or Joker. Yeah. It's yeah. Joker when they're closed and venom when they're open. Um, and so there's, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot going on. I wouldn't say that the things that are added to the script really feel that original, which is a real bummer. Um, I would have loved to have known what, uh, Guillermo del Toro's work on the script looked like, or if it, at any point it looked a little bit different because I feel like it's, it's, removed a lot of the things that I would have expected from, from something from him. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not terrible, but I, I feel like maybe your response to the movie is going to depend on how much you get out of Anne Hathaway's performance. You know, I would say this isn't the worst movie I saw this week, but if I had to choose a film to not watch out of all of them, I think it actually would have been this one, which is kind of weird to say. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't seen the original, but I have heard it's like super scary. And like, they're just like really scary moments and uh, the Jim Henson charm of it is very apparent. And yeah, (laughs) this new movie, you mentioned in Hathaway, that performance, that, that is like 2011 Oscars big for Anne Hathaway, I have to say. And I, I, it kind of took me off guard. I'm not going to lie, but yeah, I'm definitely not one of the, the, the viewers of this film who lands on the side of Yes, that is the Anne Hathaway performance I want. Uh, it's just definitely not the case for me. And yeah, I, I just don't think I, I didn't see anything about this movie that had Del Toro's stamp. That at least the way I see it, I have no idea. It's sad that like we can't even speculate. I guess on what he must have added to this because I don't see it. But okay, Will Ashton. Uh, yeah, what do you think? Are you about to cast a spell on me and Abby for all this negativity so far? Um, not especially. I, I did have some expectations going into this, I guess, or at least hopes, because I didn't really see any of the trailers or anything for this. Um, but I'm a big Roland Dahl fan. I, I grew up reading a lot of his books. Obviously, um, my favorite movie is Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory, which is and, a adaptation. Yeah, first, first time Will and I ever podcasted was over a Roald Dahl adaptation mm-hmm. for the BFG. Yeah, so there's the a lot BFG. of history there. And uh, BFG is a film I, I think I've liked a little bit more than most. I know people tend to dismiss it as a weaker 
uh, Spielberg film, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Um, for this movie, um, as much as I love Zemeckis, uh, at least Zemeckis as far as his career is concerned, recent day Zemeckis is uh, very, very hit and miss with some like huge misses and then some like modest hits. Um, I, I was just hoping for the best. I do think him making a Roland Dahl adaptation makes sense. And I think like maybe if he had made this movie around 1990 when uh, Nicholas Rogue or Rogue uh, made his version, that, that might have worked. Uh, as far as him now, where everything is a little bit like too candy coated, a little bit too CG intensive uh, to the point where there is an artifice to it that that doesn't quite work, at least for me. Um, I found myself a bit disappointed by this, but not extremely so, uh, because I do. I think the beginning of it works uh, as far as it's being it being the uh, central relationship or uh, grandmother and uh, grandson uh, relationship between um, Octavia Spencer and uh, I, I forget the kid's name. I know this is his first film or at least one of his first films, uh, who, the kid who plays uh, Hero Boy. But um, that's uh, Jazeera Kadim Bruno. Jazeera Kadim? Uh, yeah. Jazeera okay. Kadim Bruno. I know right. there's a there is a character named Bruno as well. So right. I was confusing. a little confused. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Jazeera Kadim Bruno. I, I thought his performance was quite good. I, I actually thought he carried the film fairly well and actually thought his performance was a little bit stronger than the kid relation or kid performance uh, in the original witches, which is a film I do like not my favorite uh, Roland Dahl adaptation, but I, I do agree with Abby that like the makeup in that film is outstanding. The special effects from Jim Henson uh, definitely creeped me out as a kid and i thought angela houston's performance was uh she was just perfectly cast in that original film and she just sold that performance in a way that i just think Anne hathaway i don't think she's badness to go a little bit against what you two are saying i think it's a fun performance i actually kind of like that she is so committed to going so uh so bombastic with this i just think she was miscast like i think this should have been eva green's movie <laughs> like yes, i think exactly her, i think her would have if she was the lead and it was like Guillermo del Toro directing it, I think this movie would have really, really worked um, as it is. I just don't I just, it feels off to me, unfortunately, in a way that I don't know. I just I think it's terminally too much of a late period uh, Zemeckis film <laughs> to the point where I just I don't know if he can really do a movie like this uh, in a way that really works and isn't just a like CG factory of just wonky effects and like over dilated performances and uh, things of that like including a um narration from chris rock that didn't really work for me i'm not quite sure where you two landed on that narration but it, it always just took me out of the movie and yes. just fell off oh, uh, it did um, not work for me but at all. yeah but i mean i think visually it looks fun like I, I do like the cinematography there are moments in this i really enjoy like there's a, a scene at like a dinner hall that's just like so goofy and outlandish and in a way that i really appreciated and so I, I i'm a little bit more receptive it sounds like than you two i i don't think it really works uh, and I do find myself missing the uh, Guillermo del Toro touch of this, especially him as a writer and producer, as well as uh, Alfonso Cuaron that produces. As I was well. going to mention, yeah, because yeah. I was going to say that if not del Toro directing this, Alfonso Cuaron, who, yeah, co-produced this, probably would have maybe added something to the script that would have been really good. I mean, if he brought at least some of the energy that he brought to Harry Potter and the exactly. Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, as it is, it just it it, it is a uh, a miss effort, I guess, uh, as far as uh, everyone involved. But I don't think anyone's like half-assing it or like not committed to it. I think everyone's trying their best. I just don't think it really comes together in a way that uh, ultimately works, which is a shame because I do actually think 
the two lead performances from Octavia Spencer and uh, and our lead kid. I, I've already forgotten his name. Uh, I know Bruno's Zier Kazim Bruno. I think he's they're they're both quite good. And I think they make some of the earlier moments really work. Uh, but unfortunately, it just doesn't doesn't come together in the end, which is a shame. Yeah, I agree. It is a good lead performance, and I I think yeah, it just feels like a whiff. It's like a really solid attempt. Nobody is phoning it in, really. It just, yeah, just something about it just didn't quite artistically mesh for some reason. I thought I thought the Chris Rock narration was so obnoxious. Like, it just did not fit for me. And then I'd also say, like, it is a smart idea to add that layer of the characters being recast so they're African-American. I don't know. It kind of adds, like, an extra layer to the story that fits, that does, does feel like a smart addition because it, it amplifies sort of the urgency of the story in a way that I thought was kind of interesting. Can't say that they do a lot with that, but at the same time, you could also say going too far down that road might have been too distracting, might have been a little bit too like, okay, that's not the movie that I think we came out here to see. But that said, you mentioned Zemeckis' filmography. I'm curious because I didn't see The Walk, his 2015 film, but then other than that, has he... Is Castaway the last like really good film that he made? Because like I can't think of any in the um, last twenty years that I think are that great. I mean, I know people really like Polar Express, which is right after Castaway. I was going to but, say I like Flight uh, is good, and I know that got nominated for Denzel Washington. I like Flight. Um, I don't um, think it's okay, great. I think it's point. good. I forgot about Flight. Yeah, it, but that's that, that movie's film. not. Yeah, yeah. You you guys didn't feel welcomed to Marwen last year. <laughs> I didn't I, see I didn't, that uh, one. Just, yeah. <laughs> <But> Will <laughs> no. <laughs> I have a, I guess, a fondness for, I, I think, how miscalculated that movie is to the point where I think it is an incredible failure. <laughs> but I, I think it's so, so bad and so miscalculated that there, it is almost affectionately endearing. But that is a huge whiff for him, I think. It, it is kind of strange just because, I mean, we're talking about the guy who made Back to the Future, who framed Roger Rabbit, the other Back to the Futures, Forrest Gump, Contact. He like made all of these films that were just in his prime they were big pop cultural conversations. And then nowadays, yeah, it just seems like he's sort of making films that really fly under the radar because yeah, between this and going back as far as like allied and yeah, it's just, I don't know. Uh, I'm curious how uh, his Pinocchio movie is going to land with people. I, I assume it'll be <laughs> coming out eventually at some point, but okay. So Abby Alchesi, any final thoughts on the witches? Any, anything you want to respond to that we've said or uh, a grade you want to give this one? Um, not a ton else to say in terms of response. I will say that, uh, Blank Check is currently doing their, uh, their series on, uh, the films of Robert Zemeckis, which have been like, it's been the good stuff so far, but I think it's going to be really interesting to, uh, kind of hear them talk about, um, talk about his career as it comes toward this particular point that we're discussing. Um, so if you want to check that out, I would recommend it. Um, I think in terms of overall grade, I'm probably going to give this a C. Um, I I didn't really find there were there were some parts of it that I thought were interesting. I liked the perspective change a little bit by making the family African American. I think there are some interesting parts that kind of come along with that, um, and some some bits that I feel like you really kind of see Kenya Barris's touch uh, as a writer, I think probably even more so than Guillermo del Toro's. Um, and I think sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but in terms of overall necessity, there's really not a ton that feels original or unique to this version. Um, and there are other versions that exist that I think tell the story in a more compelling way. So um, yeah, I think a C. 
All right. Yeah, I'm I'm a C on this as well. I just overall found it not even disappointing because I didn't have high expectations, but even then, I just kind of had a hope that this film would give me this sort of like spookiness craving I've been desiring. And yeah, I also I I was a little disappointed with how Stanley Tucci doesn't get to do more fun stuff in this. I've I've yeah, always looked a, at Stanley Tucci. Uh go ahead. I was gonna say it's a reunion with him and Hathaway for Devil Wears Prada. That's right. That's right. And uh no Emily Blunt, uh, his sister-in-law in this, but yeah, still I I I find this film just underutilizing such a great actor. I was telling Will off the air that I I've always looked at Stanley Tucci, even though I'm not Italian, I just kind of see him as like my uncle a little bit. Like we could be related and I wish he was my uncle, but I guess that's a conversation for another day. Anyway, Will Ashton, what did you <laughs> Uh I mean to you, John, I would recommend just putting on Big Night and uh, having fun because Big Night's a great <laughs> film. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess, more positive than you two, at least as far as the grades are concerned, because I did this. I mean, I didn't hate it. Like I, th- I thought it was just a ultimately mediocre adaptation of Roland Dahl. And I guess this is um, going to be a start of some like franchise of Roland Dahl because he had some like weird Roland Dahl credit <laughs> thing mid mid uh, midway through the credits as a. Uh, as a way, I guess, of highlighting some like, I guess, Roland Dahl cinematic universe. I know they're RDCU. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know if that's going to be tying into, I guess, this uh, uh, Willy Wonka prequel they keep uh, hyping up or alluding to or rumoring. But um, I don't know. I'll Charlie, uh, we have something to talk to you about, and that is the BFG initiative. Yeah, the BFG initiative. Oh my gosh, I can't think of a thing I want less. Anyway, keep going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean. I, I just think it's ultimately just okay. Like I, I don't find myself uh, having too strong negative feelings on it, but I don't ultimately find myself uh, involved or moved by it. the things that really stand out to me in the original uh, uh, film that came out in, in 1990 don't really translate here. And I, I just don't think the things they add to this version ultimately make it better or more noteworthy uh, in the long run compared to the uh, original film. I just find myself wondering what exactly was the point uh, as far as like what was Zemeckis trying to do here as far as like another tech reel. Uh, like I, I feel like there there might have been something more here that he wanted to do. And uh, I ultimately find myself uh, disappointed in that respect because I, I do agree. I think there is an interesting idea of changing the race of the lead characters and maybe having some more commentary there but it doesn't really feel like the movie is willing or able to uh really add more to that but yeah i mean c plus it's it's a shrug for me i i I didn't dislike it as much as you two did but i can't say i'm really gonna go to bat for this film ultimately all right that is the witches a c for me and abby but a c plus for will it is now available to watch on hbo max whenever you get the chance or have the desire all right, let's move into our next sort of Halloween-ish movie, Rebecca, which is more of a thriller, honestly, like a romantic thriller uh, with that is adapted from one of the best noirs of all time. So this is a remake of the 1940 film, Rebecca, and it's now streaming on Netflix. It's directed by Ben Wheatley with a screenplay by Jane Goldman. And it's uh, also Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse, forgot to mention them. But yeah, we've talked about the 1940s Rebecca, which was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, not too long ago because it just celebrated an anniversary. So we talked about it on Extra Milestone. And I'll say this off the bat, Rebecca, not my favorite Hitchcock film. I like that film quite a lot. I respect it quite a bit, but it's not a film that I've 
you know, rewatch a lot or a film that I particularly find incredible. I, I think it's a really good story, really good performances and a, a really great black and white thriller. According to the Oscars, it's the best movie he's ever made, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like his only best picture winner. But that said, that's a lot of expectations to put on a remake. So it's so surprising that the remake for a best picture winner, a, a film that people who may have not seen a ton of Hitchcock films probably watch Rebecca at some point. First of all, they give the film to Ben Wheatley, who not I don't I can't imagine anybody choosing him for this kind of film. But okay, you know that's different. But then also for a Netflix film, and and in some ways not like a Netflix film, like in the style of like maybe like the Irishman or marriage story, but more of like, like a lifetime film, not to diss on lifetime or anything like that, but just the blandest version of this movie possible. I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is uh, yet another adaptation of the novel uh, by Daphne de Maurier, which came out in 1938. This new film stars Lily James as yet another main character, like in the previous film we talked about who doesn't have a name. She is just darling or dear, uh, Mrs. De Winter. And uh, this film also stars her love interest, played by Armie Hammer, Maxim De Winter, along with Kristen Scott Thomas, Tom Goodman Hill, Keely Haas, Sam Riley, and Anne Dowd. So this film did come out in some select theaters. I'm not sure if Netflix had any sort of like Oscar consideration for this. I have to assume they didn't, but uh, they still pushed for this to have some sort of distribution. That said, uh, the plot is the same as the previous Rebecca, and I'll let you, Will, uh, walk us through it. So, uh, how how does this film how does this film introduce us to these characters? What's the basic story here? Uh, <laughs> uh, having me, the guy who has not read the book or <laughs> seen the original film, uh, is definitely a choice. But I'll, I'll I'll go through this as best I can. Yeah, so we follow Lily James' character, who is a um, uh, assistant, I think, or like a uh, caretaker, yeah, personal personal assistant. Yeah, personal assistant to Ann Dowd's character. She's uh, looked down upon, uh, seen as like a like working class schlub. So in this high fluent society hotel that they're in, uh, doesn't really get much uh, respect or notice. But she is uh, definitely attractive to one army hammer uh, who uh, plays this, you know, um, recent widow who is, uh, you know, taking a luscious vacation, but is very lonely, um, very uh to himself and he just wants some company and someone to entertain him while he is on this grand vacation. They form a relationship, sort of a meet cute at first, but then it becomes a little bit more serious when she is getting ready to leave with Ann Dowd. And he, uh, in the moment, just briskly asks for her hand in marriage and she says yes and Ann Dowd approves it. And so shortly thereafter, we find ourselves uh, in the company of Mr. and Mrs. Uh, is it Delvide, Delvedere or um, what is their last name? Delvedere? The Winter? Uh, the Winter. It's the Winter. Did you say Belvedere though? Del- I, I probably did, yes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, the Winter, yes. And uh, we we spend the next half of the film in, uh, actually not, I think the next two thirds of the film, uh, in their uh, exotic, um, not exotic, uh, very big and impressive uh cottage home where it is run by Kristen Scott Thomas's character who is uh definitely I think the only person or the only actor in this movie who seems to uh be channeling the right tone as far as like kind of going between the more um sophisticated aspect of the film and then indulging in some of the more kind of like 
melodramatic tendencies that are uh, coming out in this adaptation. Uh, but nevertheless, um, she definitely has a side eye look at this new wife. Uh, she clearly has a more uh, personal relationship with the belated wife. And uh, as um, Lily James unnamed character is getting adjusted to this new way of living, she realized that there are some dark secrets and things that she never really knew about her recent husband that are coming to light in a uh, somewhat um, dark and mysterious fashion. I guess it was maybe meant to be in a horror fashion in the original book and film but it seems like it kind of plays out more dramatically in this which is surprising considering ben wheatley's uh past history or past filmography where he has made uh, at least a few horror films i was surprised this movie doesn't really seem to want to be a horror movie it, it seems like it wants to play this uh almost straight uh in a way that i think probably hinders the film because it seems like the mystery elements and the dramatic elements just kind of get uh washed away into the more bland uh, and less interesting dramatic slash melodramatic parts, which uh, I guess ultimately informs my uh, somewhat uh, middling thoughts on the film by and large. There's some dark secrets lurking in the Mandalay. Yes. uh, (laughs) This movie. So the only thing I'll say to that is I think that I think part of what helps with Kristen Scott Thomas's performance here is that the Mrs. Danvers role is such a more fun role to relish in. I think that it's partly like, yeah, she understands the tone, but then also I think that she probably had an easier time doing what she wants to do in this movie. Whereas the other actors, I don't know what they were being directed to do. But so I'm curious, Abby, I, I what's your experience with Rebecca? Have you seen your, any of the other films? I know there's been other adaptations, remakes, and have you read the novel? Where, where are you at with this film? And then, of course, what you think of it? Yeah, um, I have seen the Hitchcock film. I have not read the book. Um, but yeah, I, I was kind of disappointed by this, too. Um, ben Wheatley's a weird choice uh, to direct this, but definitely um, one that kind of makes your ears prick up just because he has kind of an idiosyncratic uh, directing style, um, that didn't really, uh, didn't really show up here in ways that it would have been fun to have seen. Um, it just, it feels very straightforward and kind of masterpiece theatery. Um, and I think, yeah, Kristen Scott Thomas is great. Sam Riley is also great as, uh, the deceased, uh, Rebecca DeWinter's, um, cousin. He shows up and does a, does a pretty good job of being sleazy and creepy. Um, I think even Anne Dowd has some good moments too toward the beginning of the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the it's it's definitely it's a film that relies on the chemistry of its two leads, and I don't really think there is much there. Unfortunately, it's a real bummer because I I like both those actors a lot. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it just kind of feels like a movie that didn't like nobody's really asking for this to exist. I don't think it really needed to exist, and it just feels like there's sort of a lack of energy uh, with the exception of Kristen Scott Thomas, I think uh, th- kind of threading throughout it. You know, I I'll, I'll say something possibly controversial here. I think that hammer was terribly miscast. And I think for this film to work, I think you have to cast like an older man, you know, somebody, somebody who has just a little bit more of a, an age gap with this character. Maybe you still maintain that romantic dynamic just because that is true to the uh, the previous film right or the 1940 film that everyone remembers 
and maybe it's like a romance between a young woman and an older man and maybe there's an affair maybe i don't know maybe we could cast how about dominic west he's interesting right everybody likes dominic ha sure yeah absolutely i mean if if we know that people have chemistry we might as well um, actually, I I would have suggested I think when I first heard that this was going to be remade, I I would have thought that Tom Hiddleston would have been like an amazing choice oh, yeah. for that. Maybe role. go the Crimson Peak um, route, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Kind of the get like sort of the gothic romance vibe. But yeah, uh, as much as I like Army Hammer, I feel like he doesn't really quite fit here. What do you think, Will? Are we uh, are we being unfair to your boy Army? Um, I think the biggest problem with his performance is that he just can't quite get the accent right like it seems like sometimes he's trying to do it right sometimes he's like half doing it and sometimes he just drops it all together in a way that i think might have been a little bit easier if they had just went ahead and cast a british actor uh whether it's tom hiddleston or someone else uh in that vein i mean i I think that might have just made it a little bit easier and would have been less distracting but um you know i mean him and lily james they definitely look very nice together they're very picturesque as far as a film couple is concerned but you yeah they're little figurines on top of the wedding cake you know sure but um that yeah they just don't really share that chemistry that i think would have made this uh, a little bit more interesting even though i do I, I think i was a little bit more taken by the romanticism at the beginning than maybe you two were i thought the like french or i don't know if it was french i forget which uh part of europe they're in in the beginning of the film but um, monte carlo you know i actually do agree with you to an extent i think that those are the more engaging scenes when they're just sort of like gallivanting together a bit yeah and it, it does look nice like the cinematography in those scenes are quite nice is quite nice but um yeah I, I just find it as it gets to the thing that i think people expect from it which is the kind of mystery thriller horror aspects of it that's where weirdly uh, ben wheatley seems like super detached which is weird because I when I went into film, I was expecting the total opposite, which is that like the beginning scenes would be like where he's just kind of like phony in, just like, OK, let's just get this over with so we can get to the good stuff. But it seems like it's the opposite, like he's more trying to do a like old fashioned romanticist uh, film. And then like the like genre stuff comes in, he's like, oh, OK, fine, OK, this stuff is going on. And it's like, OK, then, now we're now we're done. Uh, so I don't, I don't quite know. I mean, I could be way off. Maybe he actually was the opposite as far as his directorial approach. But it just seems like those later scenes just don't really have much energy or uh, uh, creative desire that uh, it ultimately makes it seem even more of a uh, half hearted effort than it already is, which is disappointing, to say the least. I, j- I just think that remaking Rebecca feels like a trap. You know, if you're going to do it, you really have to, If the things you add have to really be worth it. I think the one thing this film is able to do that the 40s version just didn't have the ability to do was shoot on location and just really play up the locations that they're in. Make the Manderley feel, lar- feel larger than life. Make the getaway feel like the honeymoon before the marriage like all of that can be super effective i wonder if this film might have been a lot more interesting if they had switched up the time period i I keep saying this like i've said this for like the boys in the band too it's just when you remake a film it already exists and it was made in the era that it came out in inevitably i think the remake it's it's a hard sell because you're, you're making a period piece that started out as a contemporary piece and it's really tricky to understand what can be lost in translation, I guess. And so I don't know. I don't know if I'm alone in that. No, it's like you're making the like off-brand serial version 
by design almost like you're just like going to make the, the version of the film that's going to be seen as inferior or like lesser than compared to the original. And like I said, I haven't seen the original. I was thinking about watching it before this, but I figured it might be more interesting if I went into this having just seen it uh, cold, like just going in, just not really having a idea of what to, to expect. But if anything, I just found myself more confused, I guess, by the plot, because like by the end, it just gets kind of muddled. And uh, the plotting isn't quite uh, yeah. articulate as far as some of the things that go on. So, like, I feel like unless you already know the story, some of these things are just going to be hard to follow and, and a bit uh, muddled in its approach, which is uh, only makes the film, I think, more mediocre by design. Like Ben Wheatley, as you claim, I felt very detached from this movie by the last 30 minutes or so. And I abhor the ending. I think the ending is just such a cheat because on the one hand, I do appreciate that they are giving Willie James's character a little bit more agency, giving her more to sort of contribute to the central plot. But they're so desperate to make her more sympathetic than they think we will. I mean, I don't know. I felt like we were sort of being condescended to with this character and that the movie loses its ambiguity, which is one of the strongest things about the story by doing what it does in that ending. So yeah, I'm not a fan of this at all. I think people should skip it. Watch the original Rebecca, the 1940 version. It is very watchable. It's not my favorite Hitchcock, but it's definitely a worthwhile cinematic experience, especially if you want a good education in films of that era. I think that it's a great example of many of the neo-noir, or not, I guess not neo, but many of the noir tropes that I guess we tend to take for granted these days yeah i am a low c on rebecca what about you abby yeah i'd, I'd say i'm in the low c territory as well um I, I seems a little unfair to want to you know compare remakes of a thing to the thing itself but i mean that's that's the nature of remakes um that's showbiz yeah that that's showbiz um but also like from the talent involved you would expect i think a little more something a little more interesting than than what we ended up with here. So all in all, I think it's it's a disappointment. Uh, it doesn't really register as much. Um, and I think there are plenty of other, like you could watch the original Rebecca. You could probably also watch like an actual Masterpiece Theater series and have fun with it and not have to watch this. All right. And what about you, Will Ashton? Tell us all about your B+. Uh, yeah, I'm not <laughs> too far from where you two were. I guess I'm I'm more modesty in that I didn't feel any uh, hatred or any uh, strong feelings towards it. I, I, I found the experience to be just fairly mediocre by design, and it didn't really seem like it was striving to be much more than that. Uh, and what, that's a shame, obviously, for the reasons we mentioned. Uh, additionally, I, I, I do really like screenwriter Jane Goldman. I think she uh, has made a lot of films in the past that I really enjoy. A lot of them are very energetic in comparison to this. Uh, and I just found this one to be ultimately a subpar film as far as you two have already said. And uh, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't uh, dismiss too many chances to uh, look at army hammer and Lily James just being pretty on screen, but I just wish the movie itself uh, gave him a chance to do that while being in a better film. <laughs> so yeah, a modesty for me. I will echo your appreciation for Jane Goldman. We know her a lot for co-writing screenplays with Matthew Vaughn, but uh, also, you know, she has she has a, another film coming up with David McGee, the little Disney film. You might have heard of it called The Little Mermaid. So I'm curious how that's going to go over. 
But all right, Rebecca is now available to stream on Netflix, and I don't really recommend it. But let's talk about a film that is now streaming on Hulu. This will finish out our reviews. Long episode. It's a little bit longer when all of us have seen all of the films, but hopefully this has been really helpful for people trying to sift through all these films this week. But okay, so this new movie is Bad Hair, which is a comedy horror kind of in the style of like a b horror it's uh written directed and produced by justin simeon the director of dear white people a movie that i really enjoyed and uh he also is a showrunner for dear white people the series on netflix which again i really like that series i've seen uh the first two seasons i don't know if the third season ever came out to be honest i if it has then i needed to get to it but all right this new film stars Elle Lorraine, Jay Farrow, Lena Waithe, Kelly Rowland, Laverne Cox, James Vanderbeek, Vanessa Williams. It, it's an incredible cast. And I watched this back at the Sundance Film Festival, and I had a really negative reaction. I hate to say it. This is a neon film. It is now on Hulu after a limited release. And from what I hear, apparently it got edited quite a bit, maybe in reaction to some of the critical uh, uh, reviews that came out immediately upon its festival release. Sounds like this film is a bit shorter. They cut out a lot of subplots that weren't really necessary. And, and that really does contribute to what I found kind of difficult about the film. There's a lot they could <clears throat> shave from the runtime. Uh, maybe uh, maybe trim it down a little bit. Cutting room floor because of hair. And, it's good. Uh, good job, John. You're very funny. Yeah, some grooming myself for the big time so bad hair it's a little bit different i haven't seen this new version of the film but abby and will you have so who wants to walk us through the plot of this one i feel like i feel like will abby abby's done a couple films you just did rebecca huh so maybe maybe it's still your turn i don't know i don't know if abby wants to take the wheel on this one i'll let you two decide yeah i can take that on so bad hair is about a um kind of up and coming uh, VJ, not DJ, VJ. This is set in 1989. So it's like the height of kind of MTV style. And so it takes place at like a, a network that's supposed to be kind of like MTV. Um, and she is uh, a black woman who has kind of uh, a certain amount of trauma regarding her hair as a kid um, and is trying to come up in the world as an adult, but her hair is still uh, still an issue because it's 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 natural and very curly and I guess nappy is the term. And uh, she is surrounded by a lot of other women who are kind of struggling to figure out what their image should be as, as black women who want to kind of get ahead in, in the entertainment world. Um, so the network is restructuring and brings in a new head. Uh, this is, there's so many opportunities for hair puns in this. I am so sorry. I did not mean it. Um, but the uh, the new head of production is uh, Vanessa Williams, who um, kind of suggests that she's going to be making a lot of changes around here and uh, wants to kind of discuss the new roles with der the, the various people who are already at the company. Um, and it turns out that that means layoffs. A lot of people are getting laid off. So um, in the interest of trying to keep her job, uh, Anna, our, our heroine, um, learns about... Our our heroine? Heroine. Oh, dear. Um, learns about uh, a sew-in weave that she can get uh, at this very specific and exclusive salon. Um, 
So she goes to this salon and gets a sew and weave from Laverne Cox. Um, and it turns out that the weave is evil. Um, and it, it, uh, survives on, it needs, it needs blood to survive basically. Um, and that is displayed in some very interesting and kind of gross ways. Um, and, uh, is also kind of tied to a, um, a, a slave myth that uh, Anna has become aware of through her uh, her academic family called the moss-haired girl about a uh, a young girl who tried to make a wig out of moss, but it turned out that the moss was actually the hair of witches and now the witches take over the girl's brain. So there's kind of an allegory between that story and what's happening to Anna. Um, and there's also kind of an allegory for just like the uh, the idea of of what it means to what it means to have to try and get ahead as a, as a black woman in a highly visible profession. Um, what parts of your culture you are willing to keep and what parts of your culture you feel the pressure to kind of shed. Shed. It's hmm, an interesting choice of phrase. Yeah. I am so sorry. I, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I, I understand, you know, it, especially for a film that I think in some places, the version I saw, it, it had trouble weaving in, a lot of its subplots and and threads, I guess you could say. Oh uh, that said, <laughs> I'm, I'm in a mood. That said, I you know, I also think it's funny that this is the other film we're talking about this week that has some barber scenes because of Borat. But um, we don't have to get into that. Will Ashton, what did you think of Bad Hair? Did you have a good hair day watching this film? Um, I felt this movie had some very big sophomore film energy to it and that like it felt like uh Justin Simon 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 Simeon Simeon um Justin Simeon was uh going into this film taking a lot of the core themes and uh concepts that were found in Dear White People which is a film I quite enjoyed. I still need to catch up on the show. I I've, I've seen a couple episodes, but um you know, expanding upon his themes, making a film that's very evocative of uh, De Palma and Bill Gunn and uh, Spike Lee and like Jay horror towards the end and making something that's still very true to his identity and making a film about black identity and uh, media appro or appropriation of black identity in a way that I, I don't think it fully works. Like it feels like it's a lot of different things at once. It becomes a bit overcrowded and kind of silly at times, but I can't ignore what he's doing here as far as just making a film that is very intriguing as far as its perspective and offering something that you just don't really see a lot in horror films right now. And I, I think his approach results in a lot of very intriguing scenes, even a couple that I found genuinely unnerving uh, and got under my skin in ways that uh, definitely took me by surprise, which it shouldn't have because it's a horror film. But um, nevertheless, it does showcase some promise for him as a genre filmmaker and uh, expanding as far as his uh, visual style and visual approach, uh, including the fact that it was shot on 35 millimeter to accompany the 1989 set piece or um, timeline. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the movie itself, I, I think it's an interesting concept that I don't think fully comes together. I, I think it takes a little bit too long to set up. And I think the end just kind of so sharply go against goes against the uh the rest of the film as far as like building up a sense of dread and unnerve but um i think there's just enough here that i like and appreciate that i'm, I'm willing to 
to appreciate it and give it the benefit the benefit of the doubt. But uh, as far as it being a like good or a cohesive film, I, I can't really say that. But I, I think there's enough here that I'm going to reflect on positively that I, I think it's worth a recommend. Yeah, no, I, I guess you could say probably the message of this film is that when it comes to your culture and your background, you really have to respect your roots. And I'm so sorry. I'm just... Oh, boy. Are you trying to get canceled, John? <laughs> <laughs> Tip your waiters, ladies and gentlemen. Tip your waiters. <laughs> yeah. I, I, what I'm hearing is that they've definitely kind of softened this up a bit, or maybe not softened it up, but just sort of kept what's good, maybe cut, trimmed some of the fat, and made it go. come together a little bit. I'm not even trying on that one. I'm just, you know, that's just the way I would say that. See, that was your best one. <laughs> 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 it's all the delivery. Yeah. But all that said, uh, I don't remember a ton about this film, but it did make an impression. And I, the things I liked about it all had to do with just sort of like the B horror quality of it. it. It had sort of a quality. It had a flavor. I, and I connected with this main character. I rooted for her quite a bit. It's just, yeah, that ending, it just goes in like all of these directions. And I'm just like such a mess. And I just didn't find myself really connecting once the like folklore of it all just sort of came into play. And yeah, I gotta say, I, uh, I can't, I can't say I'm in a, a hurry to rewatch this. My grade when I initially saw it was a C plus, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a film that will hopefully find its audience. There is, a, there's a group of people that are going to really connect with this. I think just because it is of a quality that is pretty appealing to certain fans of the horror genre. And if that is you, then I think this one is definitely worth trying out since it is so easy to stream right now. But Abby, what is your, your grade for bad hair? Is it a B for bad or is it a C for cut it out? Um, I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd give it. I'd give it a B, maybe a, a high B minus. Um, I think there are some parts of it that are really good. The the ending, I think it finally really takes off and becomes what I would like it to be. Um, it I feel like there are parts of it that sort of lack a certain amount of, of substance. I feel like this is a really rich topic that um, could have been dug into a little deeper than I think the film did. Um, but there are parts of it that are still really entertaining and you can see Justin Simeon's um, many influences running throughout it, which I think is something that's pretty consistent throughout his career. So I appreciate that. There's, there's, there are things that I like about it, but I do think that it could be a better movie. So yeah. Uh, and especially given that, uh, Dear White People was such a strong hit right out of the gate. Um, I, I know what he's capable of and I feel like he could be doing a little bit more than he does here. So yeah, I, I'd give it a B minus. My prediction is that First of all, Simeon is such a talented guy. I think one day we're all going to look back on his filmography. And when people are saying what their favorite film from him is, I could see them being like, well, I like bad hair. Because that's like sort of like the unexpected choice or something. Because it is such a weird and unique film. Like Will said, big sophomore film energy. I think that's spot on. So on that note, Will Ashton, take us home. What is your final grade for bad hair? Would you Would you tip it? Fifteen dollars for a uh, shave well done. I'm I'm not even going to indulge these puns. I'm just going to go to my point. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I I I like Justin Simeon's uh, approach here. I think he's doing something that I I really admire, and I I think he definitely, like you said, is going to have a pretty strong career. Um, I don't think this is his best work. I don't think this is a film I'm going to look back upon and be like, okay, that was like him at the highest powers but i do think this is going to be hopefully like a turning point where you kind of see him really 
driving some of his directorial influences uh, in some intriguing directions and doing some some very interesting and uh, hopefully worthwhile films as far as his future output is concerned. But as far as this one is concerned, I, I, I think it's just ultimately a uh, uh, a mixed bag. It feels like it's sort of going in so many different directions that it's not quite able to, to find its way. But I, I just think there's enough here that I really, eval- I, I really value and a lot that I think is very interesting and keeps me very intrigued. Uh, that I, I'm I'm willing to admire it for what it is and give it a low B minus just because I think people are going to check this out on Hulu and get some some good stuff out of it and I think a lot of people are going to be receptive to it in a way that it's able to make some really big swings and uh, do some really weird and wild things. Um, it seems like there is like a end climax scene involving the salon that that got cut because the end of the film as it is seems very abrupt. I don't know if that's what was in the Sundance version mm, or not. Okay. Um, the way the movie ends in this version, it just seems like they, they ended in a fairly abrupt fashion. I'm not quite sure if that's the way it ended in the Sundance version or not, but um, the ending in the Sundance version is not abrupt. If anything, it's drawn out. Okay. Yeah. So I'm guessing there's some stuff by the end that got cut, which is inter- I, mean, I don't know if that's for better or for worse. So you'd have to tell me John, but, um, uh, but as it is, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, um, it, it's a mixed bag, but as it is, it's it's one that I think is worthwhile. And it does showcase a filmmaker, like you said, John, that that is going to go on and make some very compelling and unique art. And uh, if this is your favorite from him, um, I'll more tower to you because I, I admire the big swing. But uh, I prefer Dear White People, ultimately. All right. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about Simeon, too, is I think I don't know who does the casting for his films and TV projects. I don't know if it's him or how much influence he has, but. Whatever, whatever the case, he's really good at casting on his films or his creative team, at least, because I think the lead's great here. It's, it's incredibly great. Yeah. Uh, Ella Rain, who I haven't seen in anything else, just really shines here. And it's just inspired in terms of who they got to be in this. And that that extends to Dear White People as well, in my opinion. But all right. Yeah. So a C plus for me, low B minus for Will and a high B minus for Abby. Almost a B, it sounds like, but just missed out on that maybe by a and that'll do it for this week's episode of cinemaholics uh definitely check out bad hair on hulu now i think i think abby was about to scold me for my that last last little pun i s- squeezed in there i'm so sorry that was not nice <laughs> there it is again but i right, thank you as always for listening uh, don't forget to leave us a rating review on apple Podcasts if you want this show to keep going strong we appreciate your support social links and links to all kinds of other stuff are in the show notes as always. And uh, Abby, anything to plug this week? I know we kind of mentioned your Roger Ebert thing. I think that's out now, correct? It is. Yeah. The, uh, the Ebert article is out in the world. Um, that is probably the most recent thing that I have to plug. So uh, yeah, if you're interested, you can go and check that out. And that is about the mortuary collection, if I recall. And uh, of course, can always follow you it is on not to find actually out, right? that is oh wait no night of the hunter Excuse sorry me. yeah it's about night of the hunter yeah <laughs> got it confused. i wrote an essay about the night of the hunter perfect yes and you can follow abby on twitter uh link is in the show notes and it's at abby olchesi right yes that's correct a b b y o l c e s e all right and will i know you you like me we've, we've been keeping kind of a low radar did, did you come out with anything this past week though that uh you want the listeners to know about um not really no i mean um I, I was telling you before, I think I'm just going to publish some of the uh, 
Toronto reviews that I have still left in the canon that uh, I, I want to get out there sooner as opposed to later. So if you see yeah. a bunch of uh, TIFF reviews just come out this week, <laughs> that's why. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of those I really did enjoy writing. They 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 are a lot uh, sometimes, but I, I hope people enjoy them nevertheless. So look out for those. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep an eye out for all of those. Uh, you'll be glad you did. All right. We'll see you all next week from the Internet, California. I am John Agroni. From the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. From the Internet, Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.